we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians. So if you would turn there, we will be in the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 22. I, I suppose there's a lot of words we could use these days to describe the sort of world we live in. I'll just give us one word. It's a biblical word. I think it's a timely word. We live in a fallen world. Just this past week, Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but I do know one thing. That ain't good. We live in a fallen world. So how do we live in a fallen world? Well, Paul wrote a letter to the Colossian church, and this church was squarely in the Roman Empire. And like all empires, it was fallen. And so Paul writes a letter to them to encourage them how they can honor and glorify and live for Christ in the midst of a fallen world. This morning, we're going to look at the third kind of uh, partnership um, of how we live in a fallen world. The, the, the last week, we looked at the relationship between parents and children. The week before that, it was husband and wives. And so this is the third in a series of exhortations for the church of how to live in society. So these were household codes, which were quite normal in Paul's day. Codes about how to live righteously, how to live well in society. Only Paul, he flips the cultural script. And so today, we're going to look at the third of these household codes. And it is the most ink that Paul spills on the household codes. And we're going to look at the relationship between master and slave. Now, why is this the longest section? I think I am, and I'm persuaded that probably the reason why Paul spends the most time developing this sort of relationship is that this was the relationship that was most contentious in that day. My guess is that most of the church in Colossae were slaves. At that point, 80% of people, men, women, and children in the Roman Empire were slaves. So just statistically speaking, most in this church were probably slaves. And so Paul writes about what this relationship should look like in light of Christ, and it's revolutionary. So when I say the word slave, my guess is we think of its American manifestation. But but just for a moment, I want to just say that what was going on during the Roman Empire and what happened a couple hundred years ago in America, it was very different. So, like I said earlier, about upwards of about 80% of the Roman Empire were at any one point a slave. So, so the majority of its citizens were slaves, whereas in our American context, at its height, it was only 20%. Uh, in its American manifestation, it was basically and most notably based on race, but, but that's not true in the Roman Empire. So you could just stare at someone and you wouldn't know if they were a slave or not based on what they look like or what, how they dressed. It wasn't race-based. 
Um, one of the other differences is that uh, often how you came into slavery was you made a bad, let's say, business decision or you fell on financial hard times. And so you, in a sort of indentured servant way, you kind of sold yourself into slavery to get out of that debt. And yet slaves, some of them were well-educated and did many, many important jobs in the Roman Empire, including being doctors and police officers and teachers. Now, I point out that contrast, but don't misunderstand me. It was not good, nor was it wonderful to be a slave in the Roman Empire. They were classified, even going back to Aristotle, slaves were just living tools. So 80 years after this letter was written, this Roman lawyer named Gaius wrote these words. We may note that it is universally accepted in the Roman Empire that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. That was the accepted kind of rule at that time. Such that if a a slave ran away, they would be often branded with an F on their forehead for fugitive. So, So generally speaking, being a slave was not a good thing. It was often a terrible thing. And so Paul writes this letter, but as he's writing this letter to this church who are living in this sort of cultural, social construct, he writes them how they can order their relationships in order to glorify Christ. Now, I just want to say that, and to be clear, Paul is not in any way or fashion supporting slavery. But Paul is also not taking the time to condemn slavery. But Paul just had a different purpose. And his purpose is to explain how Christians in a church, whether slave or master, how they can relate to one another and honor and glorify Christ. That was his purpose. And so though Paul doesn't outright condemn slavery, the Bible nowhere supports slavery. In whatever fashion it comes in, right, whether it's its American context or this Roman Empire context, whatever form it comes in, it is always principally sinful. And I think thankfully in time, it was Christians in the Roman Empire that undid slavery. And it was Christians in other places in the world that in time, as they read their Bibles and they applied texts like the one we're going to look at, they too unraveled the kind of social um, contract that was slavery in many places of the world. Now, I just want to also say that this is a hard text to apply to us today, okay? So we are very, very distant from Roman, the Roman context and Roman culture. We, we don't have, in that one sense, slavery. So how do we apply this to our? We're going we're gonna to exegete it. We're going to look at it. But then we need to apply it to our lives. So how do we, in the 21st century, actually apply this? Well, in many places in the world, and I think this is a closer application, um, many places in the world actually have uh, people who live with you or who work in your family, kind of servants in, a, in your house. Lots of the world works like that. I think that's a closer application to us. But we, we don't often have that. Uh, but probably the closest that I could think of, that the kind of, uh, by way of application, is the closest to the text, would be two things. Uh, my uh, best friend growing up, he's a medical doctor. 
And he, when he went to medical school, as you well know, it's very, very expensive. And so he signed a contract that after he graduated, he would then work in a underprivileged community and they would then forgive much of his debt. I think that's closer to kind of what's going on here. Or maybe think of a prisoner and a prison guard, right? A prisoner doesn't have freedom. Uh, and so the relationship between maybe a prison guard and a prisoner, that would be closer to this sort of relationship by way of application. And yet, that wouldn't apply to most of us. So I think we can step back even further and say, okay, we can also apply this to the relationship between employer and employee, right? When you, when you accept a job uh, at a at Nike or Boeing or whatever, there are certain expectations and there's a relationship, right? And there's an employee and then there's managers, there's bosses, there's CEO and the people up top, the people higher up in the org chart have more power and influence than those who, you know, are closer to the bottom, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply this in a general way to the relationship between employer and employee, So if you're confused, if I'm flipping back between slave and master and employer, employee, that's what I'm doing here. I think that's the closest and most natural application once we do a little bit of work to our situation. So all that getting out of the way, the big idea, and then I'm going to read the text for these five verses is simply this. All of life, all of life is to be lived under the lordship of Christ. Let's go to the text. Verse 22, chapter 3, the book of Colossians. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what we see in these few verses are at least four, we'll call them temptations, that we have as we work or as we maybe manage other people. Four temptations that Paul gives us, and then four more, four like antidotes to those temptations as it relates to how we can glorify God, honor God, live under his reign and rule as we work. So we've got the temptation, a sort of heart temptation. We have the temptation of working too much. We'll call it workaholism. The third temptation that we'll see is the temptation to not work enough. I'll just call it work a slothism. All right, that's my word. You can use it, but I get all the royalties, okay? Work a slothism. And then the, the, the fourth related to masters is the temptation of pride. And so we're going to go through all of these. So first, let's look at this first, this first temptation about how we can work well. And it really is the temp, a temptation of the heart. We're first called to work with a a heart of sincerity. So starting in verse 22, Paul's addressing slave and masters, and he's saying, verse 22, that we are to 
Obey, this is slaves, right? Or employees. Obey your boss in everything. We saw that language as it relates to parent and child back in verse 20, didn't we? But then Paul goes on to say, and he's explaining and developing this, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, don't just work in your cubicle, in your office, when your boss is watching you, right? When you see him walking down the corridor, when the eye, right, is on you, when you know that maybe that evaluation is coming up. Instead, work hard and joyfully in all situations. Uh, about 20 years ago when I was in college, I, I, I rode for my college team. And so on Thursdays, if I remember correctly, we had this core workout that was horrible. It was devious. It was terrible. And so for 30 minutes with no break, we had to do sit-ups and flutter kicks and planks, and it was just terrible, okay? And so our assistant coach would lead this 30-minute core workout, but every once in a while, she would turn her back to us, and you know exactly what we did. Very, very quietly, we all dropped to our knees. The pain was just too much. Well, Paul's saying, as you work, don't drop to your knees when your boss turns around. Instead, work heartily, right, from a heart of gratitude, right? Your work should be marked with a heart and hard work. Which I might add, Paul makes no distinction. When you just think about it, he's talking to slaves here. He makes no distinction if your work is dull or challenging. He makes no distinction if your work is pleasant or unpleasant, interesting or boring, whether your boss is a great boss or an annoying boss. He says, work with joy. Saturate your heart with joy. And that's the first command. You see, there's this temptation to just work and be like, ah, my work's not cutting edge. And so I'll just work hard when I know that my boss is watching me, but I won't work hard or heartily, meaning work with joy and gladness. And so he says, no, watch out for that temptation. Watch out for the temptation to just work while the eyes are on you. Watch out for that temptation of the heart to just work mm, sighing a lot, maybe, or, or work as it relates to, oh, I, I don't want to get up today, or I don't want to work hard, or I don't want to work joyfully. Paul says, no, no, no. Regardless of your work, regardless of what your master or your boss, your boss calls you to, work in joy and gladness and work hard. That's the first temptation. We see the, first, the second temptation as we just keep going, right? And this is the temptation to workaholism. You know, work is a good thing. Work is a divine thing. In Genesis chapter 2, it, it talks about work as being uh, one of the ways in which we image God. But work is hard, especially when work is in the context of a fallen, broken world. And so Paul writes in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, that's that same language, but then he says, as for the Lord and not for men. One of the temptations is that we work hard and sometimes our workaholism is because we worship the job or we worship maybe our boss and we want their approval, we want to please them, and so we work tirelessly, we don't rest, and we keep checking those emails at night, 
We never put the work down because we're working for the man. We're working for the company. And so we work ourselves to exhaustion. We burn ourselves out or we burn our family out. And he says, no, no, no. You're not working ultimately for your boss or the CEO or the shareholders. Your work should be in light of God himself. You're working not to please man, not to please your boss. You're working ultimately to please God. So in that sense, there is no menial work. You clean a house, that's a divine work because it's in relationship to God. You stoop down and pick up Legos, divine work. You're just pushing papers, if that's all your job, just kind of pushing papers, divine work. Retirement. Gardening, volunteering, you don't have to be paid. All of it, work is, by its very nature and its core, it is divine work, right? We need not divide the world into sacred and secular. What we're doing here is sacred, but when we work wherever we work, that's just secular. No, no, no. All of work can be divine work. It could be a means of glorifying God as we see it in relationship to God. We are working hard, joyfully, Heartily, we are working for God and not for man. That's the second temptation. The temptation to work too hard because we're seeking to maybe get the approval of man, the the approval of someone else. The third temptation is the work of slothism. Working not enough. Now, I think we learned this early on in, in, I think, school, right? In school, we learned, let's say you wanted that A or that B, you learned quickly the game. Okay, what is the least amount of work I need to do in order to get that A? And then you would do it, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so we take that principle and sometimes we apply it to our work. What's the least amount of work I need to do in order to keep my job and have my boss happy? And it's a temptation, Especially in this context. Just think about it. Slaves had no rights. Slaves couldn't marry legally. Slaves couldn't uh, do a lot of things, including they couldn't have an inheritance. So, I mean, like, what's the point? I mean, why work hard? There's not going to be a bonus at the end of the year. So what's the incentive to work hard for the slave? There was no incentive. Except for, Paul gives us, Two incentives. He says, there is an incentive. And though you cannot inherit an inheritance in an earthly sense as a slave, there is the inheritance. Do you see that there in verse uh, 24? Now, this is not an inheritance. There's a definite article in front of inheritance. This is the inheritance. It's the reward which is nothing short of the inheritance or the reward of eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's the inheritance. Paul's saying, okay, yes, you might not be able to get that bonus. You you might not be able to, to inherit. You might not get all these things. You might be devastated working in a dead end job. Yet, a bonus is coming. An inheritance is coming. A great reward is coming. And it will all of the ways in which you've been looked over in your work, it will pale in comparison to the inheritance that you will receive in Christ Jesus 
when he returns. And so he just dangles this incentive and says, work hard, work heartily, work unto the Lord, because there is an inheritance coming that is far greater than any inheritance that we can gain here on earth. And then he kind of incentivizes one more time. If you just keep reading verse 25, he says, for, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Then there is no partiality with God. The wrongdoer will be paid back. I think sometimes the temptation is, okay, well, I work in a job and it's just not fair. My boss doesn't like me. You know, I, I just can't work my way up. It's just not fair. So, I mean, what's the point? I'm just not going to work hard. Or what's the point? I'm not going to try. Or maybe I'll just, I'm not going to sabotage the the company, but maybe I'll just talk bad about my boss behind his or her back. That's the way I'll get even. We can think of all these little subtle ways in which we can undermine our witness, and we do so because we're feeling slighted. Like our, our internal justice meters, our internal fairness meter are roaring to the surface, and we think it's not fair this system, I'm not getting paid enough, so, well, I just won't work. I'll cut out from work a little bit early. And Paul says, that's not our perspective. There will be a judgment. There will be divine poetic justice. And God's going to do it, isn't it? Those who, who do wrong, those who treat their employees poorly, those who get rich off of the backs of the poor, their day will come. And so Paul steps back and says, don't take things into your own hands. Be more concerned with your witness in the home, your witness in your job, than in your attempt at getting even or revenge or sabotaging your employer or the company you work in. God's going to repay it all. Trust God. Keep working. Set your gaze on heaven itself and its reward and God's judgment. Those are the sort of incentives that he, he, he puts before us because all of us have temptations. We all have a temptation to work too hard or not work enough. We all have a temptation to work sighing a lot, thinking, oh, that assignment is beneath me. And he says, no, you can glorify God, work hard, honor him in the manner in which you interact with your boss. So let me just ask you, if you're an employee, if there's someone above you in the org chart, my question for you is, what's your witness like in your work? What's your reputation? What are you known as? Are you cheerful? Joyful? When assignment comes down, you jump at the opportunity and do it to the best of your ability? Or do you do so with sighing a lot, frustrated that your boss is just not capitalizing on your gifts and talents? Are you undermining your witness as you work? But Paul's really concerned that fundamentally our witness is protected in our work. What's your witness look like these days? And in many ways, if you're like, oh yeah, I'm not very cheerful, I don't work really hard, well, I would just say, then I don't think you know who you're actually working for. Our ultimate boss, the ultimate CEO, the ultimate person in charge is God himself. And everything we do 
from going in, sending emails, all of it is done ultimately to God. We serve God, not man. He's the ultimate CEO. Now, that's as it relates to employees in relationship to employers. But starting in chapter 4, Paul now turns to masters. And he really is attacking their pride. And we read this in verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this is radical. right? Remember, the Roman law slaves, they have no right. They couldn't enter contracts, couldn't even legally marry, couldn't own property. Why? They were, in, in a true sense, property. So you can imagine if you had slaves, own slaves, you can imagine reading this thinking, uh-oh, this is not good, right? Like we look at you know, the, the, the portion about slaves and their relationship to their masters and think that's the hard thing, but oh, this is harder. This is much harder. You can just imagine the social pressure to actually live out these, this text in the Roman Empire. I mean, the whole fabric of society was at risk with just six words. Treat your servants justly and fairly. Justice, fairness. Now, the topic of justice and fairness, it's a big theme in your Bibles. In the Old Testament alone, that word comes up more than 200 times. Now, what is justice? What, what is fairness? Well, well, biblically speaking, justice is treating people equitably, treating people fairly. Right? It's giving someone their due, whether that's in punishment, whether that's in protection, or whether that's in care. So, so even when, when uh, in the Old Testament, when Moses is talking about giving money to priests in the temple, he uses the language of injustice. If you don't give it, it's an injustice. Those priests are do that. So justice is about living well in society daily, writing relationships in such a way that we are generous, fair, and we treat people with equity. Now, I think sometimes when we think of the whole justice and, oh, I really want to fight injustice, we think, oh, there's some people who fight injustice and then the rest of us can get off. But the Bible doesn't know two categories. All of us are called to fight injustice, to live rightly, to live fairly, to live lives where we order our relationships in such a way that we're being fair, equal, and equitable to one another. Romans 13 puts it this way. Pay revenue if it's owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor those where honor is owed. I mean, that's a life of living justly. And it's an, a radical, radical idea, even in Paul's day. right? In Paul's day, his owner could get away with anything. And so now he's saying, oh no, you need to be fair and just in your treatment of your slaves. Or managers, boss, boss, bosses, you need to be fair and just as you interact with people, even though you could probably get away with it, right? A manager, at least for a time, could get away with treating someone poorly, and that he says, no, 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 your relationship to them should be one hallmarked or, or characterized with justice and fairness. How we work and how we treat people in our work matters. 
In the Old Testament, God sees his people fasting on the Day of Atonement, and yet God is not pleased with their fasting. And it's interesting why in Isaiah. He, he says, I'm, I'm not going to accept your worship. I'm not going to accept your spirituality. I'm not going to accept your fasting. Why? God says, yet, yet on that day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. He, he rejects their worship, rejects their fasting because they were exploiting their workers. And then he calls them to break the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free. How, how we treat those under us, how we treat our employees matters. It's an actual, if we, if we just look at theological terms, it's an issue of justice, right? An employee owe, is owed something. They are owed justice, fairness, equitably, kindness. And so Paul here says, you need to treat people with equity. But then did you, do you notice how he roots this? He then says, why? And he says, because there's someone over even you, right? Elon Musk, really powerful man, really rich man. There is someone over him. God is not impressed with Elon Musk or insert anyone. There is a master over all. All humanity is ultimately under the rule and reign of Christ. And so he says, if, you, if you're a manager, right? If you've got a direct report, if there's someone under you, you would do well to consider that you are ultimately not the master, right? Because when you get high enough in a company, you begin to have swell with pride. I mean, look at what all my hard work did. Look at how I got here. And you start swelling with pride. And he's saying, wherever you're at, you need to curb that pride with the humility to realize that there is a master even over you, which completely flattens it, right? And this is the wonderful thing. Because if, if, you know, if a boss is also simultaneously a slave to God, then it flattens it, and then even the slave and the slave master are equal under Christ. Right? This is exactly what, if you just swim upstream in the text, if you go to chapter 3, verse 11, look, look there. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He says, here in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But in Christ all but Christ is all and in all, right? This is what the gospel does, right? The gospel says whether you're lowest in your work or highest in your work, it, in Christ, you're the same. And so different gospel applications apply to you. So, so one of the wonderful kind of um, Pauline exhortations of the person and work of Christ is Philippians 2. You, many of you know this, right? It says that Christ emptied himself becoming a slave. Isn't that interesting? That's the language. Christ himself became a slave. So if you're working and you're treating your employees unkindly, unfairly, unjustly, Paul's saying, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand this gospel at all. The gospel says that God came down and God didn't just look down on humanity. God came down into humanity. And then all the unfairness and injustice of this world fell on Jesus Christ, and he died for sins. And so Paul says, okay, master, if you want God to treat you fairly, and he's talking primarily to Christians, right? He's saying, okay, if you want God to treat you fairly and you justly, then you, by extension, treat others fairly and justly. If you want to receive grace from God, 
be gracious to your employees. If you want mercy from heaven to crash down on you, well, then be merciful to those under you. If you want to accept the injustice of the cross and then the justice that comes through the gospel to us, well, then you be just to your employees. It's just a natural extension. I mean, it's, it's the height of hypocrisy to say, I want the, the fairness of God. I want God to treat me fairly in Christ, but I will treat other people unfairly. I mean, it is a perfect example of hypocrisy. And Paul points it out and says, no, whether you're at the height of a company, whether you have all these people under you, treat them fairly and justly because you want your heavenly father to treat you fairly and justly in the gospel. So, if you have people who are under you in the you know, company org chart, direct reports, people that you have influence over, people who you train, how would you say they, how would you say your reputation is amongst them? Do you model your interactions with them on Christ's interactions with you, who is gentle with you, who is just with you, who is fair to you and merciful to you? My guess is that as you consider God as your master, as you consider that you yourself are a slave in Christ, that you serve Christ, my guess is that you'll care about your employers, your employees, right? You'll care about what they're paid. You'll care about their families and their children and their education. You'll care how they're doing. You'll want them to thrive. All because of those six words. So if you're a supervisor, a manager, people are beneath you in the company org chart, what's your reputation? What's your reputation? Do you demand too much? Are you hard to work for? Do you try to shame people into getting more out of them? Is the financial bottom line the most important thing to you? What ultimately drives you as a manager or a boss? Well, our text says that all of us are going to stand before God one day. So don't worry about the shareholders. The more important thing is that we're standing before God one day and giving an account. So, we live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a broken world. How do we live? Well, we live in light of the gospel. Jesus, who is infinite in power and authority, comes down in the form of a servant and then serves us by living perfectly and dying, being risen from the grave, he serves us by changing our lives. All of us, all of us don't deserve that grace, and he is fair to give it richly in the gospel to us. So so whether you're lowest in your company or highest or everywhere in between, you can image the gospel to those above you and those below you as you consider Christ in his ministry to you, and as you realize that how you work, how you interact with people, it matters, and it can be a delight, it it can be a mechanism of worship, 
And it can as we set it in its proper context, which is in light of eternity and in light of God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that in light of everything you're doing in and through our lives, we we are grateful that we can be rich in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us in ways in which we have not treated people and given them their due, whether that is in their reputation, whether that's financial. And Lord, we pray that we would order our relationships in such a way that we act with fairness and justice and equity to one another. Lord, we want to honor and glorify you knowing that you are not merely a master, you are a good master, so good that you would send your son to come and die for us. We thank you for that reality and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.